This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Pueblo, voters who cast ballots for Barack Obama later supported Donald Trump in 2016. I think people voted in the last election for their family and their own individual economic well-being. People are getting jobs. People are getting promotions. They're better off financially. You know, I think that turned the tide here. People were tired of being unemployed and of being broke. So that's a good example of just how purple-ish Colorado is. Not entirely red, not entirely blue. Purplish is also the name of CPR's new political podcast. And now the second half of our latest episode about the concerns of Southern Colorado. Sam Brash picks up the conversation with CPR reporters Nathaniel Miner and Allison Sherry. Nathaniel, today the coal mines are, are long gone from the more rural parts of Southern Colorado. What defines this region now? Well, I think what sets it apart, in some ways at least, is what it doesn't have. We're not Denver. We're not the six-county metro area. We're not Boulder. We're not Larimer County. We're struggling. We're not going to get the BLM office on the western slope. We're kind of the forgotten part of the state. So that's Lola Spradley, and you can really hear in her voice um, how she feels about this corner of the state. She was talking about how a place like Grand Junction, which has had its own economic troubles, is now a contender to host the Bureau of Land Management. It's a huge federal agency and would be a pretty big get for the Western Slope. Right. So anyway, Spradley is retired now in La Vida, about 15, 20 miles off of I-25. And uh, she was the Republican Speaker of the House back at the turn of the last century. So like 2000. Yes, exactly. 2000-ish, yeah. Uh, And one thing Huerfano County does have a lot of is retirees, people like Lola Spradley. They will leave uh, the Front Range, they'll leave Texas, California, um, and come to Huerfano County because it's pretty cheap. You can buy some land up in the mountains, beautiful view, uh, and spend a lot less than you would in a place like Vail. But, you know, scores of retirees is not really an economic engine. Uh, So what you see is a lot of young people leaving the area just because they can't find work. And earlier in this episode, you told us how Democrats used to dominate this part of Colorado back when it was more of a union stronghold and, and was based on these industries like coal mining. What are its politics like today? Kind of similar to Pueblo in some ways. But if the people in Pueblo feel like there's a difference between Democrats there and Democrats in Denver, I think it's a little more pronounced in Huerfano County. Why do you say that? I talked about these issues with Dale Lyons, and she's a local Dem Party chair. Because it used to be the Democrats knew everybody in town. We sat down in her tiny little office in Walsenburg, the biggest town in Huerfano County. Do you think the state party and the National Democratic Party are are choosing candidates that really resonate with a place like Werfano County? I guess I would choose not to answer that. Lyon says she's talking with the state party about all this. It's sensitive, but she did tell me this. I just think that, in general, we have to be mindful that living rurally is not an obsolete notion. And I think a lot of the people up north might believe that. And this is something I heard from more people than just Dale Lyons. People here just feel like candidates from the Denver area don't really get what's going on down there. 
So so wait, are are voters there feeling neglected enough that they've they've turned to the Republican Party for good? Like, is this part of the state on its way to being red or are voters just waiting for the right Democrat? So at the local level, it's a it's a different story. Dale Lyons, the party chair, says if you look at Democratic candidates who know their neighbors, who grew up in the area, they're doing fine. In 14, we had six Democratic candidates running, and all of them won their election, which was kind of not a great year for Democrats nationwide. So what you're seeing more of, then, is voters with split ballots, Democrats on the lower end, and then maybe a Republican at the top. And that's not to say there aren't local Republicans, like two of the three county commissioners in Werfenau are Republicans. But I talked to one who says, at the local level, party labels aren't really that important. What matters is how good you are at your job. And your job is to understand local issues and then try to fix them. Well, that sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, so it sounds like they feel like national politicians or state-level politicians just don't share that perspective. They aren't as focused on the local issues that they're dealing with every day. Yeah, that's what I heard. I mean, this is Werfano County. And people told me over and over again, in Spanish, Werfano means orphan. So they're feeling like orphaned by state politicians. Right. Nathaniel, what about this year? Do people still feel orphaned and forgotten in 2018? There's there's a governor's race going on. There's lots of candidates running for statewide office. Do they still feel forgotten? I mean, the people that I spoke to, and these were maybe 15 or 20 folks from Werfano County all the way up to the San Luis Valley, Alamosa area, um, they kind of didn't even realize uh, that there was a governor's race going on. Um, and this was a month ago, uh, right before Labor Day. But, you know, candidates, uh, both Jared Polis and Walker Stapleton, you know, have, have campaigned down there. But um, what people told me is they're not, you know, they're not speaking to them about issues that really matter to their lives. Yeah, and I want to bring back Allison Cherry, because you were down in Pueblo around the same time. What were people saying about the governor's race down there? Did they feel appreciated or and listened to uh, in this current political contest? I mean, no, I think I actually really agree with what Nathaniel just said, because I, I sort of did... The one thing that stuck out at me almost more than anything was that people universally didn't have strong thoughts about the governor's race. And what is remarkable about that is I was talking to partisans. I was talking to people who otherwise really engaged in politics on a day-to-day basis. And I just didn't get a sense that there was a ton of excitement about either politician. But even do you remember Bo Ortiz, the Democratic official with the Mm -hmm. Obama painting in his office? This is what he said. Uh, I think it's it's up for grabs. I really do. Like Mr. Polis and Mr. Stapleton need to spend some time down here. They better pay attention to us. So have Polis and Stapleton been campaigning in Southern Colorado? Yeah, they have. I mean, uh, Polis has attended or held 40 events, according to his spokesperson. And Stapleton has been down there, quote unquote, dozens of times. But they counted his years as Colorado treasurer. But also I should note that the the day I called about this, the hour I called about this, Stapleton was delivering a speech in Pueblo and then moving on to the San Luis Valley. So according to the campaigns, the candidates are there. But so far, it doesn't sound like their message has connected with the voters in southern Colorado in a way where they feel like they're listened to. Okay, but let's look at this from a campaign's perspective, because I did some math and 80 percent of active voters in Colorado live along the northern front range. So in places like Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, the the suburbs around all those places. Why should people in these places be 
concerned that voters in more rural parts of Colorado, like Southern Colorado, don't feel listened to, don't feel like their priorities are being represented. Sam, why can't you just let other parts of the state be happy too? That's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make (laughs) is that... That in a democracy, you know, you want the majority of people to have a say. And if the majority of people happen to be urban voters, then I'm not sure we should be protecting the voices of rural voters at the cost of urban and suburban voters. The first thing that comes to mind is, like, it's okay to want good things for other people. My second argument would be, uh, you know, people move to Denver and to Fort Collins uh, and Boulder, and they go other places, right? Like Colorado is a beautiful state and we, and you don't live in the city just to stay in the city. You live here because of its proximity to everything else, to Vail, to Crested Butte and to Southern Colorado. Like there's some really cool things down there. So I don't know, Sam, do you live in the same neighborhood as Walker Stapleton or Jared Polis? No, I'm not going to say where I live for the purpose of this <laughs> podcast, but I, I don't think I live near either one of them. Okay. So I think when someone who, you know, lives in Boulder or lives in some Denver suburb cares about Pueblo or cares about Grand Junction um, or cares about northern Colorado, it sends a message to the rest of the state that they care about them, too. And the other thing I would say is I'm a justice reporter and I cover a lot of rural jails and I've been in a lot of rural jails. And I will say that the opioid crisis in the San Luis Valley and the overcrowding, you know, if one part of the state is economically suffering, we all pay for that. So not to get all freshman philosophy on you here. That's okay. That's allowed for this show. Okay, great. So, so earnest. But uh, let's think about utilitarianism, right? And that, this is the idea in philosophy that a moral decision is one that uh, does the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Right. Right. So if you're governor, that means your decisions would be for the, you know, the people along the front range where most people live. There's another part of utilitarianism, which is these decisions are, are, are moral and good if they, um, if they last through the long run. I would argue that over the long term, Colorado would be better off if, if its candidates for governor really did pay attention to everyone and take everyone's concerns into account. Nathaniel, Allison, thanks uh, for coming in. It was awesome, Sam. Yeah, you're welcome. So this episode of Purplish connects with a newsroom-wide project from CPR called Road Trip to November. Allison and Nate and many other reporters here have traveled the state to learn what people are concerned about ahead of the midterms. Leading up to Election Day, they are going to share what they heard. And today I'm joined by Allison as well as John Daly and Andrea Dukakis to talk about the governor's race in particular. And uh, welcome to all of you. Nice to see you in the studio. Thank you. Too. Thank you. Uh, Andrea, you were in another part of southern Colorado driving Highway 50 from the San Luis Valley to Durango. Rough gig. Not, not. <laughs> Beautiful um, drive. Generally, what did you hear about the governor's race? Well, I asked a lot of people I met about the upcoming elections, and they didn't seem at all focused on the governor's race. This was a few weeks ago, so things may have changed, but no one brought up the race unless I asked them. What they did bring up over and over again were concerns about drought, water, and lack of water. Many of the people I talked to live off the land. They're farmers and ranchers. I went on a ride with Alamosa County Commissioner Darius Allen, who's also a rancher. He wears a big 
cowboy hat and boots. And he took me to see land that he says is usually super green, but not so much this year. And like others, he told me he's not happy that both candidates for governor are from the front range and thinks they don't understand the lives of people like him. I'd like to see a gubernatorial candidate come out here and uh, I like to tell him, okay, I'm going to feed three ton of hay today to 250 cows. Uh, I like to tell him, you know, I pulled a calf yesterday and the leg was backwards. I know what that's all about. We don't have those rural roots like we used to. I mean, this is also a part of the state where there's a lot of poverty and it's been hard hit by the opioid crisis. Over 90% of folks admitted into the Alamos. Alamosa County Jail, excuse me, test positive for heroin. So I guess people feel like there are a lot more pressing issues. I definitely heard about water, too. Um, I was down in Otero County, which is east of where Andrea was. Um, and I talked to an Otero County commissioner who was also a cattle rancher. And he was saying that they, a lot of people um, where he lives cut down on their cattle operations during the severe drought of 2012. They got rid of calves. And they've actually built them back up since then. Um, and now, because of the severe drought, particularly in the southern part of the state, they're really struggling because um, they're just because of what Andrea said about the grasslands. The other thing I want to say is that everybody in rural areas talks about health care costs. Well. It's a real concern from among Democrats and Republicans. There was a woman I talked to who was running a fruit stand in Rocky Ford. And she pays some more than $3,000 a month for her and her husband for health care. And she's a Republican, and she elected Republicans to fix this. And because the last two years have gone by, and there's a Republican Congress and a Republican president, and there's been no fix, she's very disappointed. These are issues that the candidates have weighed in on, particularly health care policy. Uh, did the people you talked with connect those concerns to the candidates' positions? I mean, sure, they hear the candidates talking about these issues on the news and in campaign ads, but they say they want the candidates to visit the area more often and see for themselves how things like the drought and heroin affect Southern Colorado. Jason Anderson's a county commissioner in Sawatch. A lot of people, I think, would say, look, if you take the time to come, that's half the battle right there. And, you know, I mentioned this on Purplish, too, but the candidates actually are visiting. They're, according to both campaigns, they've been down there, you know, a few dozen times. I think just their messages aren't resonating. They don't have that populist feel that, uh, that, that's making people feel like they're being listened to and they're addressing that anxiety. I can tell you there's a lot of Democrats that aren't excited about uh, having Jared Polis and the lieutenant governor from the same region of Colorado. Uh, we were hoping for a lieutenant governor from Pueblo or from, you know, the rural areas. That was uh, Gilbert Bo Ortiz. He's the clerk and recorder in Pueblo County. Okay, John Daly, you traveled a different route, I-70, from east of Denver through to Grand Junction, very major artery, obviously. And I imagine people on that road may have a very different sense of the race for governor. You know, it was interesting. I got the sense that this race resembles the broader national political landscape. Most of the folks I spoke to were either strongly backing Walker Stapleton or Jared Polis or hadn't thought about it much or didn't want to say. And I talked to a few Coloradans who were totally overwhelmed by the flood of campaign ads 
and seem more interested, frankly, in talking about the Rockies or the Broncos. <laughs> okay. <laughs> did you get a sense if national politics are having an effect on the governor's race? I, I really did. You know, in, in Jefferson County, I met an educator, a Hillary Clinton voter who strongly supports Jared Polis. Julie Averett has been fired up by national politics and President Trump, who she considers immoral. She thinks Colorado needs Polis and Democrats in charge here as a counterbalance to Republican control in Washington. We need to pull everybody we can a different direction because, I mean, I think the, the, the way Colorado is going right now under Hickenlooper has been fine. But I think with national politics the way they are, we need to do what we can locally to combat those movements. Yeah, I got a sense from the Democrats I talked to that national politics overshadows everything right now, that state politics is just not their priority. I mean, sure, they want a Democratic governor, but they're more concerned about making sure Democrats win more seats in Congress to counterbalance Trump. And that's interesting because I got a totally different sense down, especially in Pueblo. I didn't feel really any pizzazz at all about the top of the ticket. In this case, it's the governor's race. And that might be because I was talking more to Republicans and blue dog Democrats who, you know, didn't seem to be as excited about Jared Polis. What I did hear about are all these local races. Um, There are like 15 people, I think actually more than 15 people running for mayor in Pueblo. There's also this open county commissioner race. and There's signs all over town and there's debates. And um, it just feels like nationally, there's this big sweeping political movement happening. And I just don't sense, at least I didn't sense where I was, that that's touching Colorado, you know, Mm. this national political movement that's like making people really excited about Washington. Um, We'll see if the presidential race, you know, if that changes in two years. I suppose that underscores the old saw, all politics is local. And you saw evidence of that. John, earlier you mentioned that you met a fair number of people who didn't want to perhaps reveal whom they support. Just expound on that for me. Sure. We know that Colorado has a lot of unaffiliated voters, essentially independents who don't formally back either party. I found quite a few voters who didn't really want to talk a lot about which candidates or party they back. And for some, this seemed to me clearly a reflection of the contentious national political scene. They don't even want to go there. Yeah, Yeah. they just didn't really want to talk about it. Listen here to Brian Hessling, who helps run a family-owned peach farm in Palisade. He's an independent who's voted for both Democrats and Republicans. He thinks a lot of people are just turned off by politics at all levels. I think that the larger body politic is poison right now, and it's divisive, and it's causing more harm than help. Okay, if that's how people feel about perhaps the candidates this year, how do they view the man who holds the office right now, John Hickenlooper, a Democrat? I thought it was interesting. Several people brought up Hickenlooper, both Republicans and Democrats, and told me they like him. They said not only did Hickenlooper show up to campaign in Southern Colorado, he's also come a lot as governor. Um, And Hickenlooper can claim some successes in rural Colorado. He helped start an investment fund that offers capital to rural businesses in the state. He's also been a real champion champion of the redevelopment of Fort Lyon in southeast Colorado. It used to be a prison. Now it's a residential center for homeless people dealing with addiction. So Hickenlooper has some pretty strong credentials in southern Colorado. And I talked to this guy as a 64-year-old. He's a contractor at this blue-collar bar in Pueblo. He is one of those people we've talked about on Purple as she voted for Obama twice, and then he switched over to Trump. But he says when it comes to how Colorado has been run the last eight years, he's really happy. I don't have anything against uh, 
Hickenlooper, I think he's been a hell of a governor for Colorado. To be honest with you, I never really looked at the governor's race yet. He said he'd heard of Jared Polis, but he didn't really know much about him. And he said that he knew Walker Stapleton was related to the Bush family. He assumed he had a lot of money, but that was about it. That was Jay Yacone, I believe. Yeah, that was Jay Yacone. So, John, what did you hear about the current governor uh, along that I-70 corridor you traveled for the road trip? Well, kind of echoing uh, what Andrea and Allison have said, in general, uh, most folks that I talk to seem to feel like things are going pretty well in Colorado. They're concerned about some of the impacts of this booming economy we have, but they seem pretty happy with Governor Hickenlooper, though, again, people who are willing to offer their opinions seem to split along traditional Republican versus Democratic lines. I think, though, that there are some Republicans that are making a pitch. It's it's a time for change. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, Here I spoke to Cindy Beyer, an attorney and Republican campaign volunteer in Littleton. What could be done with the state if we have a Republican back in place again? Because what truly have the Dems done for the state? Have they brought economic development here? Have they truly lowered our taxes? So, of course, she sees Walker Stapleton as the right way to change things in Colorado. At the end of the day, what were your conclusions about this race after your road trips to November? I guess I felt that support feels really lukewarm for the candidates. I didn't meet a lot of people who feel passionate about Jared Polis, but I also didn't meet a lot of people who are passionate about Walker Stapleton. I mean, that could change in the upcoming weeks, but neither seems to have that spark that gets voters really excited. That's, I mean, that's very similar to the way I felt in Pueblo. It didn't, it just seemed like people were sort of surprisingly unengaged in this sort of big statewide race right now. Mm. Um, And I kind of wonder, too, if it has something to do with the fact that all four, if you include the lieutenant governor candidates, are from the metro area. You know, there's just nobody down there naturally to go down and talk to those people. Or they're just turning it off and they're they're tired of it all. I don't know. Yeah, and I would agree. People who were fired up were fired up mostly because of national politics. Thanks to all three of you for being with us and sharing what you saw and heard. Sure. You bet. Thank you. We heard from CPR reporters Allison Sherry and John Daly and Colorado Matters' own Andrea Dukakis. Indeed, their reporting is part of CPR's Road Trip to November. Travel along with them through photos and stories at roadtrip.cpr.org. Bigfoot is the subject of a new podcast called Wild Thing, and it comes from a hard-nosed journalist. Laura Krantz lives in Denver. She used to work at NPR. Wild Thing centers on an anthropologist who, throughout his career, claimed to have evidence of Bigfoot's existence. This new show also examines how and why this giant hairy creature is so ingrained in our culture. The first episode is out today, and begins with a bang as Laura and her team travel deep into the forests of Washington state and see something shocking. We're surrounded by huge leafy huckleberry bushes and rhododendron in full bloom. Pine trees tower above us. It's gorgeous, but there's no time to take in the scenery as we're trying very hard to keep up with Shane. He's your textbook mountain man wearing head-to-toe camouflage and carrying all the right outdoor gear. He's one of two people with a key to get into this area. In fact, he's one of the few people who've even seen what we're about to see. Whoa, you can see where it's like, whoa. (laughs) This is what I expected. Yeah. This is, this is 
crazy. This, I mean... Laura, you're speechless there. What did you see? Well, I saw giant ground nests. And these are essentially like these huge woven nests. They look like birds' nests. Like imagine yourself like an itty-bitty baby bird in a nest. And that's kind of the scale I'm talking about right here. Eight, nine, ten feet across. They were woven together. And, you know, I talked to a number of different people who had been lifelong outdoorsmen and lifelong woodsmen and never seen anything like it. They said it's not a bear bed or an elk bed. And it looked a lot like the kinds of nests that gorillas make in Africa. And so the thought is that maybe, just maybe, Bigfoot made these nests. But these are Sasquatch nests. They could be. Can I use those terms interchangeably, by the way, Sasquatch yes. and Bigfoot? Yes, you can. You cannot okay. use the word Yeti. That's that's Bigfoot's Asian cousin. Yeti is not related to North America if Yeti exists. Right. Okay. I am sure that lots of people are thinking at this point, seriously? <laughs> is, isn't the existence of Bigfoot a closed case? Uh, and here you are, an experienced journalist who believes presumably in facts and science. What started to change your thinking enough that you pursued this project? So back in 2006, I was working for NPR and I was reading the newspaper, The Washington Post, and there was this big spread on a guy named Grover Krantz. Same last name. Same last name, which is exactly what I thought. And then I went on to read the article and he's this kind of eccentric dude. He was a tenured anthropology professor at Washington State University. He'd waded into like big debates of the time on human evolution and human migration. He was pretty well respected. Serious stuff, yeah. Mm -hmm. He donated his bones and the bones of his dogs to the Smithsonian Institution and was, you know, very invested in science. And then there's this paragraph in there that says that he would drive around the Pacific Northwest looking for Sasquatch with a spotlight and a rifle. And I thought, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) But you're a professor, And you are a scientist, but you believe in Bigfoot? These two things, I mean, I thought Bigfoot was just like a campfire story. So that's really what started me down this path of sort of thinking, all right, well, maybe there's more to this than I originally thought. And of the the Krantz last name? Um, He was, so I had to ask, I asked my dad and my dad said, I'm not entirely sure. So I'll ask your grandfather. And my grandfather said, oh, yeah, that's my cousin. He used to come to the family picnics and measure people's heads with calipers. (laughs) Always practicing science. Always practicing science and was just kind of this eccentric guy. And I thought, all right, well, he's a relative, too. So now I really have to do this. Uh, What evidence did he find that convinced him of the creature's existence or, or convinced him at least enough to try to find out? Its so, existence. Yeah. So he saw the casting of a set of footprints. So if you pour plaster into a footprint in the ground, you can preserve all of the detail and and that's it's called a, a cast. And he saw a set of prints that had been made up in Washington state and one of them was crippled. And he said the, an, the uh, ana- anatomical detail on them was so good that there's no way they could have been faked. And that's what convinced him. This would have been back in the 70s at some point. I understand that his widow actually lives in Colorado, in Parker, I think. Yes. Uh, You also interviewed her. Does she believe in Bigfoot? She does. And actually, that you could say that Bigfoot played matchmaker here 
because she had read an article in the paper talking about how this scientist in Washington state believed in Bigfoot. And he's this academic. And she said, well, I'd never heard of anyone who had these kinds of credentials saying that Bigfoot was real. And so she started writing to him. And then he came to Denver for a lecture. And then they met. And it was romance. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Denver journalist Laura Krantz is my guest. She used to be with NPR. She has a new podcast. The first episode dropped today. It's called Wild Thing, and it is a serious investigation of the existence of Bigfoot, of Sasquatch. And it is also an exploration of the popular culture surrounding this beast, which I want to get into. But if... He believed, this anthropologist and your relative, that Bigfoot was real. Did he have some theory about what space it occupied in animalia or in evolution or what? Yeah. So Grover thought that Bigfoot was a descendant of this giant, this now extinct giant Asian ape called Gigantopithecus that existed, you know, a million years ago. And his thought was it was a a descendant of that. It had come over the Bering Land Straits. As apparently we did. Yes. Well, maybe. We might have come in boats. That's true. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if Bigfoot took a boat. Um, But yeah, the idea was it's descended from this particular species. So it's uh, uh, in the order primate. Fascinating. There's a whole, the second episode is all about evolution. Okay. How ingrained is Sasquatch in in our popular culture, would you say? So it's hard to really quantify it, but I will say that when I started thinking about Bigfoot, and this is probably going to happen to you now too, is uh-huh. if you're in the grocery store, if you are at a bike store, if you are anywhere you go, you will see references to Bigfoot and Sasquatch. There's socks, there's chocolate, there's bikes, there's snowboards, there is erotica, as we all know. There is, um, there's all kinds of movies, there's a publishing company, and it's kind of everywhere you look. So there's a lot of appeal out there. As we all know, there's erotica. Okay, I didn't actually know that, but I'm learning things from you, Laura Krantz. In this series, you will visit Bailey, Colorado, the home of the Sasquatch Outpost. So this little section here is on footprints, including these tracks. This is our map of Colorado Sasquatch sightings. Our Bigfoot, who we call Boomer. And you would be shocked at how many people never see this. They come in the museum, they walk around, they leave, they never even see this Bigfoot standing here. And this is the centerpiece of the whole museum. Tell us about the origins of this Sasquatch outpost in Colorado. So Bailey is a tiny little sort of two-horse town. And this used to be the old grocery store that was there, so back in the 1800s. And it shuttered many, many years ago. And this couple, Jim and Daphne Myers, bought the the grocery and turned it into sort of a grocery store slash Bigfoot thing. Because Jim is a he, – he is a very serious about Bigfoot, um, but he also recognizes that a lot of people are fascinated by it. And so it was still part grocery st- and then part Bigfoot – outlet kind of thing. And then they realized that they could just make all of their money doing the Bigfoot stuff. So right. They dropped ditch the, the Doritos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They totally ditched the Doritos. And they just had the Sasquatch outpost where you could go and get hiking and camping gear and then all kinds of Sasquatch paraphernalia. And then they opened a museum 
uh, Sasquatch Discovery Museum, which you just heard the the sounds from that, the little hooting owls and stuff. And they have a map up in there and they have some discussion of the different evidence. And there's a giant Bigfoot sort of tucked in behind a tree that if you weren't looking, you might miss him, which goes to show you if you were out in the woods and you weren't looking, you might miss him. Well, speaking of that, when I think of Bigfoot, I think of that iconic photo of him or her uh, like facing the camera, astride. Did you learn anything about that image? Oh, my God. I learned so much about that image. Okay. So that is from the 1967 film called the Patterson-Gimlin film. So it was shot just over 50 years ago. And I actually went to the 50th anniversary celebration last year, which was just about a year ago. And it is a lady Bigfoot striding away through the forest And, you know, there's all kinds of theories about whether this is legitimate, this is actually Bigfoot, or if this is a man in a monkey suit, or, you know, a hoax of some sort. And this film, which is only a minute long and is very shaky footage, um, it's been just analyzed to death. It's been stabilized and slowed down and remastered, and people have spent hours and hours and hours. I said I heard one guy tell me that it's been watched second only to the Kennedy assassination. The Zapruder film. Yeah. Podcasts, of course, are sound-driven, which got me thinking about what Sasquatch might sound like. You delve into this, uh, I think digging up some tape from Bigfoot research websites. <laughs> Did you learn anything from sounds? Um, well, not from hearing those particular sounds necessarily. You know, people will make recordings of stuff that they hear in the woods. But the problem with that is unless you see what's making the sound, it's often hard to know what's actually doing it. And I heard several stories where people had thought they'd heard a Bigfoot. They'd recorded it. They brought it into some Bigfoot symposium and they played it for the whole audience because they were so excited. And someone's like, yeah, that's an elk. Okay. Or that's an owl. <laughs> so the, the the sounds are a little bit tough. But, you know, they if you're out in the woods and you hear something like that and you're alone and you're camping, that's going to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. How do people answer the fundamental question that if Bigfoot existed, we would have seen it by now? We'd just be more acquainted with it, especially with, you know, satellite imagery and as much development as there is in forest land and the growth of the population in the West. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably one of the hardest questions to answer. Um, Some people just say that it's very good at staying hidden and staying out of sight. You know, other people will say, hey, we are seeing it. There are eyewitness accounts. It's just people don't believe them. Where do you land? On this, Laura Krantz. Oh, I don't know if I want to give that away yet. Uh Let's just say that I definitely want to believe. You want to believe? Yeah. Are you glad you took it on? Oh, yeah. As someone who's taken on what what some might consider more serious topics. Yes. I think this has been – it's been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of interesting people. And, I mean, I learned some cool science along the way. Denver journalist Laura Krantz, creator of the new podcast Wild Thing about Bigfoot. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Most teachers, three-quarters of them, say housing plays a role in their decision whether to continue teaching in a district. To retain teachers, Denver and other school districts now connect educators with programs that offer down payment assistance. 
One program has expanded to 15 school districts in the state. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has the story of one of the first Denver teachers to take part. School's out for the day, but five students are lined up, drawing on the chalkboard in room 205, LaTanya Burnett's seventh grade math class. But these little kids aren't her students. They're her grandkids. Every day after school, they hang out in her classroom until... All right, people. Backpacks, jackets. It's time to pile into Grandma's car on this rainy day and drive five minutes to her new home. Wait a minute. Grandma, I'll get you guys snacks in a couple minutes, okay? Four of Burnett's grandkids live with her in a tidy suburb next to wide open fields in Denver's Green Valley Ranch neighborhood. Jay, you want some fruit snacks or you can have some crackers? The grandkids help take care of a dog, Midas, and a cat, Chappie. Another grandson stays with her on weekends. Burnett has 11 kids and 15 grandkids, and many of them come around to visit. A lot. That's how Burnett wants it. Family is very huge for us. We want to stay close-knit. We want to be together. We spend every holiday together. We spend birthdays together. It's important to my husband and I that we're able to pour into our grandchildren's lives and be a part of the legacy that we're leaving behind and helping them know that they're important to the world. This is Quentin and Cameron's room. No, Cameron and Amir's room. In July, Burnett and her husband moved into this five-bedroom, three-bathroom house. Her son-in-law and daughter also live here. Her daughter's a flight attendant and is now just a hop, skip, and a jump from Denver's airport. Burnett smiles broadly. This has been a blessing for us to just not have five minutes from the airport, five minutes to work. We get to spend a lot more time together. For years, she and her husband lived in a 1,300-square-foot bungalow in Aurora. Our retirement home, and then we acquired some of the grandchildren. There was also the commute. Burnett has always taught in northeast Denver. Her grandchildren made the hour-long, traffic-clogged commute with her each day. They attend the school she teaches at. Here's 8-year-old Amir. I felt sleepy, and I felt really like I didn't want to go to school anymore. So the 22-year veteran teacher spent months looking for a bigger house closer to her school. She and her husband were priced out of the Denver market, where the median home price is half a million dollars. The Burnett's had some down payment money. But we couldn't quite get the 20%. After school one day, Burnett went to a presentation from a company called Landed, which bills itself as a social mission real estate brokerage. Here's how it works. Homebuyers put up as little as 5 or 10% of the down payment. Landed helps them get to 20%. With a 20% down payment, there is no mortgage interest, which saves about 200 to $300 each month. Too good to be true. Too good to be true. Our first reaction was, didn't sound real. Her husband was skeptical. He wanted to know, well, as a teacher, how can we afford, you know, on your income? They're not going to give you this kind of money on your income. That's because Colorado ranks last in the nation for the competitiveness of teacher salaries. But at the second meeting with Landed, Burnett found out it was true. The down payment share comes from foundation investors. When the homeowner refinances or sells, they pay back the down payment. Landed shares in a portion of the home's future gain or loss. There's another group of people, though, who see benefits to a teacher living near her school. I'm able to tell my parents, hey, I just live down the street. I'm just around the corner. Burnett can run informal homework clubs at her house. She welcomes parents knocking on her door with questions. She says parents know and trust her. They love the fact that I'm here in the community. They see me as more than just their kid's teacher. We're neighbors. We're a community together in and outside of that school, so it helps 
with our learning system. And they know this is a teacher who cares about not just the work she does at school, but cares about our kids in general. Just don't make a mess. There should be no chips on floors. Right now, though, as the afternoon sun begins to set, being in a house big enough for her grandkids to live in lets LaTanya Burnett be a grandma. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Maybe your mom will move in here. Maybe you can convince her. Not many people have a mountain named after them, but that honor may be bestowed upon two mountaineers who died on a peak in China. Christine Boscoff and Charlie Fowler lost their lives 12 years ago. A bill to name two Colorado peaks after them may get final approval in the U.S. Senate in the next few months. It passed the House unanimously last year, and that's when I first spoke with the climber's friend, Arlene Burns. She led a search for the pair in 2006. It required some incredible round-the-clock detective work. And hi, Arlene. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for being with us. You led a search for them from afar uh, in Telluride, I understand. How did you manage to locate your friends who disappeared in the remote mountains of China or Tibet? I mean, at that point, you really didn't know. Um, How do you begin to do that from afar? Well, it was an interesting effort, and it all started out when um, one of our dear mutual friends, uh, Diva Chihonis, who owns a bookstore there in Telluride, was uh, it was her birthday, and we were expecting both of them to be back. And then we realized, hey, you know, they haven't returned yet. So as we started uh, prying and called her company, it turns out they were three weeks late, and they had missed their international flight, and no one had heard from them. And it really was, uh, we started something called a Fowler-Boskoff search committee that were, it was really five dedicated friends on the ground in Telluride, and we realized, you know, first we wanted to hand off information and we realized there was no one to hand it to. So we became the search engine. And originally we were looking for them in an area the size of California. Wow. So uh, it was, uh, we had a group on the ground. We were working with the Chinese uh, police. We were working with the embassy. We were working with Tibetans and um, trying to find uh, in the end, what was really the most helpful is trying to find where they might have left their luggage before they went into the mountains, assuming they wouldn't have taken everything they owned with them. And that finally became the key, um, partially probably because we offered a reward for information. Um, and then we found the driver who had dropped them off, and we found monks in a monastery in a very remote region um, uh, that had lasted them, and we think these monks were the last people to have seen them alive. Okay, so that helps you triangulate the area. It surprises me how long they had been missing before, you know, someone sort of sent up a warning flag. Well, I'm, for all of us who travel a lot, and I'm in the same category, um, I, it often happens, when, especially when we're off on Himalayan expeditions that last for six weeks or two months and are often extended on one or the other end. Um, And this was the case. Uh, Christine had been leading a a climb in the Himalayas, a commercial climb. And after the climb, she and Charlie were, were doing what they love to do, which was climb a, um, a unclimbed peak and uh, in a remote area. And it was one that Charlie had had his eyes on for many years. So um, it's, it's, funny because, you know, if you have a, 
if you have the wife waiting back home or the husband waiting back home, you know, you know exactly. But with us as friends, you know, it's like, aren't, shouldn't they be home by now? And it was really this birthday celebration that sort of triggered us going, wow, they are a little bit late. Yeah. But um, it's a bit the nature of, of the beast, so to speak. And we did find Charlie on Christmas Day. And, um, and in finding Charlie, we knew that Chris was not alive, but uh, the weather that was full winter in the mountains at that point. So the, the search for Chris was postponed till the spring. But at that point, we knew we were not looking for people that were injured and needed help, which yeah. originally in the search, we had no idea if they were injured, if they'd been kidnapped even. We wondered, you know, there was all kinds of speculation. But it really was a miracle that that we were able to find them at 17,000 feet. And what, what killed them? Well, it was most likely um, a dramatic event, either a Serac collapsing, which is this ice feature on the very top of the mountain that came down, or an avalanche, or that might have triggered the other. Uh, th- this idea of naming peaks for them. I'll say that these are two neighboring peaks on the border of San Miguel and Dolores counties in southwest Colorado, just over 13,000 feet high, and they're currently unnamed. So how did, how did this idea come to you? Well, one of the members of our Fowler-Boskoff search committee, who was a, a very good friend of Charlie's and a fellow climber, had been often in the mountains with him. It was really his initiation, um, and this was an area that Charlie loved to go in and explore these were peaks that he had climbed before in the decades that he had been in this area, which was just really on the neighborhood of Telluride and Norwood. And um, and Steve did some research in the USGS naming because there were unnamed peaks there oh. and um, was able to kind of go through the process. And when it became on a federal level, that could really include Christine Boskoff as well. So it's it, these are peaks that are 13,000-foot peaks. You can actually see them from several places around. And um, it just seemed like not only a great way to honor Charlie and Chris, but also to honor the peaks because these were really uh, among the best of several generations of alpinists and mountaineers. And uh, not only were they incredibly accomplished climbers, but they were role models as humans for so many people all over. So this uh, this is really an exciting uh, thing for us, and it's also a miracle that anything can go through Congress and pass unanimously. So <laughs> it's lovely that they can be honored like this as well. I hear your inherent cynicism there. Uh, and as we said, this awaits Senate approval. I imagine that there'll be something of a celebration maybe in Telluride or Norwood when, when this finally passes Congress. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. Mountaineers Christine Boskoff and Charlie Fowler died 12 years ago, climbing a peak on the border of China and Tibet. A measure to name two Colorado peaks after them could get a U.S. Senate vote in the next few months. I spoke with their friend Arlene Burns. Finally today, a reminder that we have an exciting opportunity for a Colorado musician. Maybe you know that each winter we do a big holiday show on stage in front of about a thousand people, with many thousands more in Radio Land. Well, this year we're leaving a space in the lineup open, and it might just be for you or your band. So show us what you've got, and you might land a spot at the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, which tapes 
in November. Find out how to enter right now at CPR.org. That's CPR.org. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek, and we want to welcome CPR News fellow Haley Sanchez, who joins Colorado Matters this week. Welcome, Haley. Glad to have you aboard and glad you could listen to us for the last hour. Thanks for your time. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.